0: As we continue considering our integrity before the world, I want to remind you that this world in which we live is filled with traps, devices that are there to draw us away, to destroy our witness, to take away our service, even even to destroy our lives. And as we live our Christian life out in this world, we sometimes look and wonder, Lord, why do we have to be here? Why is it this bad? Why can't we be in a better environment? I've told you before that I can remember back in the 70s when uh, the churches started becoming, instead of like uh, salt and light, which we were called to be, and not like missionaries out, as Matthew 28 describes us, but we became like forts. We closed our walls in. We pulled our schools, our entertainment, and everything within the church. And churches were a one-stop shopping place for families. The only problem with that is we were not getting the gospel out to those who needed most. And we were not maturing our lives because as you disciple someone and as you go through the struggles in this world, that's what God uses to temper and to strengthen you. And as much as you get frustrated with the world, The more you look at it, the more you should understand the blessing of the grace of Christ. Living the Christ life in a world that is opposed to all things Christian is not easy. And more so now than even last year, we are living in an environment that is not tolerant of Christianity. It's amazing that America was founded on the Christian principles of love and tolerance. That we would accept people in. But the problem is now that we've not continued to teach that. That the source of that love and the source of that tolerance is Christ Jesus. And unfortunately, now we are seeing what we've reaped. Because we've sown an idea that somehow if you're here, you're Christian. The term Christian has changed over the years so many times. And it does not mean any longer what it once meant. I can remember watching one of the old versions of of the movie Moby Dick. I read that book uh, by Herman Melville many years ago, but in this version, done back in the 40s or 50s, uh, there was the typical Quaker gentleman sitting there at the big barrel, and he was signing in uh, new people that were going to go on the six-month trip there uh, whaling. And as they walked up, he would look at each one, And he would sign them in and give them their money and they'd go up on the ship. And this one man came in and it was obvious he was not like everybody else. He was about six foot eight. He was wearing a loincloth. He was very definitely uh, from from West Africa. And he had a spear, probably eight feet long. The Quaker man looked at him and said, "'Tis thee a Christian." The man picked up his spear, he threw it about a hundred feet and hit dead center on the side of a barrel, he looked up at him he said, thou art a Christian. Sometimes that's the way we judge a Christian. Will they fit what we need at the moment? If you need leadership in the church and they're a leader in the community, oh wow, they're a Christian. If you need someone to teach in a Christian school and that person has all the degrees, they're a Christian. But the reality is that's not what a Christian really is. It's much deeper than that. The reality is we've given up on what our Lord has taught us to consider important. I believe many of us are living what uh, we used to call the Demas Syndrome, D-E-M-A-S. The Apostle Paul taught us about this because when he was in prison, the last letter he wrote, Second Timothy, you'll find this in verses 9 through 10 in chapter 4, listen to what Paul said. He said, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We have many people that begin well, and they want to follow Christ, but at some point they got distracted. They followed the world, and they walked away from their calling. Loving this present world is the Demas syndrome, and it will destroy your Christian witness our Christian service, and our whole Christian life. What does the Bible say about loving the world? Well, there used to be an old saying, and I grew up uh, in Atlanta, but we had a farm over in West Georgia, a very rural area. My family had been there for generations. And there were several of the old men that worked on the farm there that I I love the the little lines that they would give out, the colloquialism that would sum everything up. Somebody would be talking there as they're shucking corn and we're sitting around talking one afternoon and somebody would say something about, well, you know, it's just not safe to smoke tobacco anymore. And, and the fellow that smoked looked up and he said, you don't need to be talking about that right now. I don't want to hear it. And one of the ladies would say, a hit dog hollers. And she was right. One of my favorite sayings was this. They said, if you give a pig and a boy everything they want, you'll have a wonderful pig and a bad boy. Think about it. The problem is today, parents feel like it's their job to give their children everything they want. Yet that's the very thing that destroys them because you're conditioning them that happiness is found in things, not in relationships. One of my life sayings, and it's not in Scripture, but it's expressed all through Scripture, is simply this. People are more important than things. Jesus didn't die to save the things of life that you like. He died to save you. He loves you. And he's trying to rescue from what would destroy you. I grew up not far from the Little Tallapoosa River. It ran across our property. It's not a big river, but it's a very fast-moving river. Many times when there would be a huge rain we would go down and we would look at the water. My dad showed us something one time. He broke off uh, a, a, a magnolia bloom and he threw it in the water on the top and it floated on the top of the water. It moved very slowly. He said, now watch this. And he got a huge limb, a pine limb that had, still had plenty of pine needles on it. And he shoved it in the water with the pine needles under. That passed the magnolia very quickly. And we said, wow, Daddy, how'd you do that? And he said, the first four to six inches of the water on top is very still. But underneath, the friction is created and the speed. That's what moves everything. He said, it's under that that you find the limbs and the stumps and the debris. And he said, if you dove into that water right now, the first four inches would be fine. Everything below there would kill you. That's the way it is with the Christian looking at the world. It will entice us with its beauty and tranquility. It will appeal to us until we're caught in the middle of it. And then it will pull us beneath the surface. It will drag us along the rocks and the limbs and the debris and it will destroy us. The Bible has placed many warning signs for us, but so many Christians don't read them. We think they're from, for somebody else. We don't understand that, that following the world after you're saved results in four very significant things. You don't lose your salvation, but you live as if you're not saved. You do lose your rewards. You do lose your witness. And you do lose your service to Him. And in that service loss, you lose your reputation before the world. Some people are looking for something that works. They want to see a Christian that can truly live out the Christ life, that it will make a difference. They're watching you everywhere. And they want to know truly what you're about and what Jesus is. John is writing to believers. In these verses, it's amazing what he says. He warns them, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Greek word for world here is cosmos. And cosmos is referring to several things. It can refer really to three different things in speaking. It can refer to the physical world, as in the planet Earth. Cosmos can also refer to humankind or mankind. But lastly, it can also refer to the moral world. And that's the context of our passage. The people, the culture, the environment, and the culture. All of that is what it's talking about. Be careful that you don't get caught up in that. In the story in Genesis of Lot and his unnamed wife. They were told to leave the sinful city for God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they are leaving, they were told, don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. Many people have speculated on why this happened, but it's very simple why it happened. Everything that mattered to her, her heart, her dreams, her future, were back there in that city. There was nothing outside of that place she desired. And so God does something that he often does with sinners. When you... Continue to beg for something. When you continue to want something, he gives you an overdose of it. He said, this is what you desire. Have it and see where it takes you. And we see, see where it took her. So many people have an affection for the world that loses touch with who God is. And we have to be careful that we don't do that. Jesus plainly tells us that in this world, Satan rules. Remember that this is, this is not a world that is going to be kind to you. It's a broken world. It's a sinful world. And for thousands of years, it's gone deeper into that sin. John 14, 30 says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing to do with me. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Is Satan is ruling the world, How do we stay away from Him when we're living in the world? How do we avoid that? Shouldn't we go and just cloister ourselves away and hide? You see, the reality is this. There are three truths that are given in this passage that will tell us how to live in the world but not be of the world. How we can have things in the world but not have those things hold so tightly to us that we lose touch. With who we are. You know, it, it, as much as you want to think that your security is in a 401k or an investment portfolio, the reality is your only security is in Christ. That's all. Everything of this world can be gone overnight, in a moment, and it may very well be very soon. But when you hold to Christ and you depend upon Him, He will get you through this world unscathed, yet mature and prepared to bring others to Him. It's the one that in the storm of life can see clearly the face of their Savior that others will be drawn to in that storm. We've got to be different. The first thing I want you to think about is simply this. As it speaks of the lust of the flesh, what your heart desires, your Christian spirit cannot sustain. It simply can't. The lust of the flesh, or as the NIV interprets it, the cravings of sinful man, have a way of just eating their way into us. We have to be careful about that. We have to avoid that. I've learned that fasting one day a week helps me to not crave food, certain foods. We all are addicted to different foods. I don't to start naming them off because your stomach will growl and you'll leave early. I mean, we all love to eat but at some point we have to discipline our bodies so that our bodies do not take over our spirit. That cannot happen. I learned early on in seminary that no matter how skillful you are as a pastor, once you go past time to stop, you're going to lose a certain number of people. And a lot of times preachers love the sound of their own voice. I don't like the sound of my voice. I do like the sound of truth. And I know this. In fact, my next-door neighbor, Jerry Gunnels, and I were discussing this the other day. It's more difficult to preach a short sermon than it is a long sermon. Anybody can chase a rabbit. Anybody. Get on the subject that you enjoy, and you will just absolutely go on and on. And everybody around you's eyes will roll back in their head, and they'll start snoring. The reality is truth needs to be pointed Truth must change you immediately. And the flesh has a way of guiding us away from truth. Charles Haddon Spurgeon told this as a parable one time. He said that there was a tyrant that ran a community. He dictated everything there back in the Middle Ages. He, He called in a man one day and had him brought before him who was a blacksmith. And he said, I want you to make a chain and I want it to be this long. He said, I want it to be perfect. And the man went back and he began to forge each link of this chain and put it together. And he brought it and he said, here it is, master. He looked at it and he said, go back and make it twice that size. And he did. And he brought that back. And then he handed it to him again and said, go back and make it twice that size. And he did this five times. The man felt that the master was incorrigible. And he finally got back and he said, here... I've got it just the way you wanted it. And then he brought in his soldiers and he bound the man with the chain. And he had him thrown into prison. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, this is what the devil does to men. He makes them forge their own chain. And then he binds them hand and foot with it and he casts them into outer darkness. You see, that's what you do with material things. Things that you desire and you want. You're not holding them, they're holding you. Be careful what you possess. I believe that we need to give away as well as to take. I believe that we need to share as well as to keep. It reminds us that those things don't really matter. Selma, yesterday, there were three estate sales. That's big for Selma. Usually, we only have one. We had three. All of our little collectors, like me, were running around everywhere. Jackie, I see you smiling. You were there, too. I I bought some things. In fact, I'll go ahead and confess to you. There's an estate sale that's going on in Selma. And the proceeds from that estate sale are all coming back to First Baptist because the house was owned and the property was owned by a mother and son who loved this church. And I'm thrilled with that, so I'm not going to tell you to go to that place and buy those things because some people, their possessions possess them. I make a habit of doing this. If I have something and somebody likes it, I'll give it to them. I'm taking a risk telling you that right now, I can tell you. Um, but I don't want I don't, any possessions to ever possess me because I can remember the time that I was more concerned about those possessions and you fall into a trap. We do this thing in Selma where we have estate sales. We collect all that we can collect and then we die and then our kids sell it because they don't want our junk. They want something green with dead president's pictures on it, don't they? And the reality is, we watch each other and we say, oh, so-and-so died, I can't wait till they have their estate sale. Don't do that. Don't get caught up in that. Hold it very carefully. Enjoy things and enjoy the beauty of them and appreciate them, but in the midst of that, don't let them hold you from what you should be. The next is the lust of the eyes. And I want to remind you that this is the tenth commandment. Having a coveting heart is a dangerous thing. And amazing, all ten of the commandments wrapped around this idea of coveting or wanting something. But I want you to think about this. What your eyes can never unsee is that temptation. The lust of the eyes is powerful. Sears and Roebuck learned this a long time ago. So did J.C. Penney. So did so many of these other companies. There's a reason why they mail out so many flyers to you in the mail. They want to tempt you. That's why they have the best cameramen and, and cinematographers producing their commercials. They want you to look at something and want it. I can listen to a radio station if I'm fasting, and I can almost smell the hamburger through the radio waves. I'm so hungry. They describe things that way where it will absolutely capture your heart. And you have to be careful about that. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate it. Now let me tell you something. That story I struggle with because I studied that uh, that story in the original Hebrew and we don't get any good answers there except this. There are several things that Eve did that shouldn't have been done. Number one, she was staring at the tree. When you're being tempted, don't stand there and stare. I had a man tell me one time that as an alcoholic, he said, if I can go to a party and be around people that are drinking and not drink, that makes me a stronger person. No, it doesn't. You're tempting yourself when you do that. The Bible says to flee those kinds of temptations. I was called to the home of a friend early one morning who was absolutely going through a panic. He he had just gotten his two-year chip in AA for not drinking, and he got up that morning and for whatever reason, he, he went to the faucet to get a drink of water. He turned it on and he tasted it. And he said, it tasted just like bourbon. And he went to pieces. And he said, what's going on? I said, Satan's playing with you. You celebrated those two years. And he is determined to, you, that you will not make it to three years. He said, what do I do? And I said, well, not, today don't drink water. But let's pray. And we prayed for an hour and a half that God would make him strong and get beyond that because temptation is something that will absolutely tear you apart. You cannot stand in front of temptation and overcome it. Malcolm Forbes, some of you remember him, Forbes magazine, he had a quote, remember, that, that many of you probably use from time to time. It goes like this, He who dies with the most toys wins. Remember that? The reality is Malcolm Forbes didn't understand he who dies with the most toys still dies. And the toys don't go with him. Sometimes we get caught up in things in this world. We think that one more will be just enough. That if we can complete this set that we've been working on, it'll be just fine. We should have that kind of passion about our Lord. And thirdly, God's windows of blessing... They come and go. The pride of life is something that will take the best of us apart. But remember this, the the windows of God's blessing come and go. He's not going to always bless you because sometimes you need to be in a lean time to learn. You need to focus and, and blessings aren't what it's about. God is not dropping trinkets for you to make you love Him. He gave you salvation. You know you have a home in heaven. You don't have to doubt that He will be with you through every storm in life. But if blessings don't constantly come your way, things that you want don't become aggravated, that's not the way the Lord works. We used to go to the lake near where our our farm was, and we'd take a loaf of bread, old bread, and we would try to lead the ducks back to our house, dropping bread as we go along. You know what's amazing, though? They'd get to our house, and when the bread ran out, they'd go back to the lake. You know why? Because their heart was at the lake. Sometimes we follow breadcrumbs, thinking this is where we should go. But God's lessons come sometimes in the most most disturbing ways, in the most frustrating situations. When we beg God, please take us out of this. Please take this problem away. Please remove what we're going through right now. Please free us from this. And God is putting us through that to teach us something about His nature and His love and His kindness. And all we can do is resist it. All we can do is resist it. God wants us to be obedient to Him. We say to ourselves, you know, I've worked hard every day. I've earned everything I've got. This is mine. The reality is it isn't. The pride of life will lead you away from God. You know, Exodus thirty-three nineteen 19 is a passage that I struggle with many times. I don't know if you read Scripture and you hit on a verse and, it, and you just... Literally wrestle with it. I wrestle with this passage. The Lord is speaking to Moses. And he's talking about being in his presence there and showing himself to to, to Moses. And he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And that was an amazing thing. When he passed by, he was never the same again. But after that, listen to what God tells him. He said, don't forget this. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is not tricked into giving us what we want when we want it. Everybody would like to eat dessert first. But if you continue to do that, you won't be eating at all for very long. You cannot survive on that. That's why... Scripture tells us that God's deep truths are like meat. You must chew on them and take them in and digest them. They're not like Cool Whip. They're not like drinking your favorite drink. There's so much more than that. There's a man that boasted about his ability. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 4, we know a lot about him. He was... A great man, a mighty man. In fact, it says the king reflected and said, Is this not Babel and the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might and power and the glory of myself? And literally as he was speaking, it says, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty, has removed from you. And he lost it all. God humbled him to prove what he really was made of. Don't test God and push him to that point. Be willing to not be distracted by the things of this world. One Saturday morning, a businessman was busily preparing a report that he had to present on Monday to the entire company, and he was a nervous wreck about it. He'd been selling all week long, had not had time to really prepare, and he did not know what he would do. Continually, in his room, his daughter came in, constantly wanting something from him. His wife was out shopping, the other kids were gone, it was just he and his daughter. And he thought, I will never get this report finished if I don't give her some distraction. It was raining outside and she was stuck in the house. The dad looked over and grabbed the newspaper. And on the back of the newspaper, it had a picture of the world. Just as pretty as ever, blue and just shining. And he tore that out and he tore it up in about 500 pieces. And he took it in the other room and he threw it across the floor. He said, there, honey, put that back together and bring it to me. I'll give you $5. He thought, that'll take care of her. I've got at least an hour. Five minutes later, she walked in. All the tape was out of the tape thing, but she had taped it back together perfectly. He looked and he said, how on earth did you do that? How did you? He said, all those pieces look the same. How did you get it back perfectly? She said, Daddy, it's really simple. And she turned it over. And there was a picture of a man on the other side. And she said, I just looked at the man. And when I got the man put back together, the world got put back together. The dad moved his report aside. Put his daughter in his lap. And he said, dear one, you have just taught me the greatest lesson that I could have. You see... If we can get our lives back together, the world will be fixed. If we'll obey Christ and if we'll be the witness we should be, we don't have to worry about interlopers coming in and dragging our children away. If we give them truth in such a palatable way, they're changed forever. They're not going to be distracted by humanist plot. We've got to be found faithful. Faithful we've got to put this person back together you and then the world will come to where it should be let us pray oh father I thank you so much that you love us all the days of our lives even when we're at our worst you're at your best and we thank you that you don't give up on us in the same way we give up on one another I pray that we would understand that your love is not just for us to enjoy. It's an example for us in all that we do. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we can understand that our lives need to change. Our lives need to come closer to you. We need to become more like what you want us to be and not what we're desiring to build. Because the things of this world will never make us into the people we need to be. Only you will do that. And may we get our eyes and our hearts and our hopes set upon you. In doing so, we will be changed. Father, speak to someone this morning who's searching and seeking. And I pray that they'll find what you have for them in a realistic way. Bless them, encourage them, lift them up. But most of all, give them the courage to make that decision to change. And we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.